Hello, I'm Jens Schönfeld, owner CEO of Individual Computers Germany, and you're listening to Scene World Podcast. Let's start. Okay. Welcome to the podcast. Yes. It's the Scene World Podcast. I'm, I'm AJ. That sexy bastard over there is Jörg. What's happening? Hello. My voice is getting better with the ages. Yes. That yes. I'm turning into. In 30 years, I, I will sound um, like James Bond or something. <laughs> there you go. Um. In a minute, we'll be talking with Saul Cross. He's a graphician and a composer for RGCD, and he's kind of a big shot as far as, like, you know, the history of doing commercial games, and uh, we'll discover this in a minute. We're also going to have Andrew Fisher, who is from Scene World. We've talked to him in the past, and that was um, episode something or other. I don't know which one, because I, I have no mind. I don't remember either, but... Um... We had that interview about yeah. a scene world with mm -hmm. him and um, Silvio Savarino. And if you're talking about a sweet, sweet radio voice, mm -hmm. Andrew is the archetype for the sweet, sweet British radio voice. So he's going to be here, too, helping out to interview. And I love these interviews where we don't actually have to do anything. <laughs> you should do them more often. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, those, those are the best. When we can just take a nap and, and let someone else do all the heavy lifting. Well, you know, uh, you know, Andrew is a big shot in the retro uh, community. He's mm -hmm. writing books on the topic of uh, video and computer games, you know. Yeah. Um, and he's writing for Retro Gamer UK, the biggest retro magazine in, on the planet. So. Yeah. And he's also doing video reviews and stuff for us. And and writing for Scene World, so you know by all means everyone exactly. should check them out yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. But so so we'll we'll be there in in a minute. Uh, yeah. Before then, though, we have some news that are going on. That is going on. Let's start with your news, AJ. What okay. have you got? Um, there's actually quite a bit that's happened. I guess the big one. There, there's two big pieces of news that have occurred in the last month or two that. A lot of people are talking about one of them is um, the C64 Reloaded Mark II. Individual right. computers has come out with it. It is um, it's the second generation of the Reloaded. It actually has the name Commodore on it because they got the rights to do that. Uh, it'll handle a 6510 or an 8500, uh, both CIA versions that were in the machines, most of the different VIC chips. Uh, it's got a slot for one or two SID chips, uh, and it'll be either 80, 6581 or 8580, and it'll automatically identify all the chips you put in it, generate the correct clock speed, and set the correct voltages without you ever having to do anything. That's pretty um, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're saying it's completely jumper-free, and uh, <clears throat> I guess I, it's not available yet, I don't think, but it should be relatively soon, and the price is going for 184 euros, which is about... 215 bucks which isn't isn't bad at all for for what it is you know yeah we had an um we had an interview about the mark ii with Jens schoenfeld 
in our December podcast. Yeah, yeah. And again, you have to, uh, you know, as far as I know, he was talking about doing like an FPGA version, but as far as I know, this is still the thing where you got to populate it with chips. So, however, however, the second piece of big news is that uh, Gideon Schweitzer, I think that's how you pronounce that, who is the guy that that does the 1541 Ultimate and 1541 Ultimate 2 and whatnot, has also designed a new main board for the 64. It's called the Ultimate 64. Um, It's similar to the Reloaded, but it's an FPGA implementation, which includes the Ultimate 2 Plus as well. So it's more like the 64? Yes. Except it's just a board that you stick into your, you know, existing case and and and, and all that. Whereas which is same with the Mark II, right? You right, can exactly. you can get the case separately from right. the turn magazine, mm-hmm. but it's not automatically included. Right. That means there are three new Commodores sixty four from three different manufacturers yeah. and designers coming out in the same year. Yeah. Now the Ultimate sixty four. Uh, they said the compatibility is pretty good. It's almost 100%, but not. they don't want to say it's 100% yet. But there will be software updates that'll, that'll enhance that as time goes on. Um, it, it also supports an actual, it's got a slot for an actual SID, so it'll take a 6581 or 8580. But it also has an emulated FPGA version in there that will work with that. Um, it's got HDMI output, the tape, you know, it's got tape port support. Um, and that's going for 199 euros or 230 bucks, which actually is pretty good considering you're getting an FPGA main board for a C64, which also comes with the 1541 Ultimate built into it. Which I already have, like most people. So well, I don't have one. It doesn't make it, it doesn't make a difference well, I don't, for I don't, many people. I don't have one of those. Well, here in Germany, so it would, it would <laughs> make a difference for me. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, what's your guess? Who is making the race? C64, the Ultimate uh, C64, or the um, Commodore 64 Mark II? I like them all. I um, I personally like the idea of the the um, I like individual computers. Um, uh, C64 Reloaded because it's using all the original components. Right. Um, right. I don't have anything against FPGAs. I like the idea of FPGAs, and I think it's cool because you could potentially do more with an FPGA. Like you could have the FPGA emulate a super CPU or something to that effect. You know, you can you can do that stuff with it because of how it's how it's designed and how it works. Um, and and we'll see how that how that comes about if something like that could actually happen. But yeah, I, I like them both, and I like the fact that that you get that 1541 ultimate built into the machine that's pretty cool there's you know so it gives you some extra functionality that you wouldn't have just from the main board uh but yeah i i I like them both i haven't heard much on where the the 64 is at the moment um i know that they were sending out proofs to get made to like the plastic shops but um but i don't know what has happened since then well, you know, we have three strong competitors here. Yeah. Jens Schoenfeld is doing this stuff commercially since 2006. Mm-hmm. Gideon is known for his ultimate 1541. And it's so much 
um, sought after that he keeps reproducing them and it takes like half a year to get one. Yeah. Because the list is, waiting list is so long. And on the other hand, you have Darren Mailburn, who did the most, most successful um, C64 product that is actually real C64, and that's a DTV. Mm-hmm. So there are really three strong competitors. And they all have their fans and fellowships in the scene. Yeah. I guess so uh, V64 is taking pre-orders, and their machine, uh, the, the large one, the full-size one, is going for 150 pounds, which, about 167 euros, which, again, in U.S. dollars, is is about $196. So they're all comparatively priced. They're all about the same. I don't see them necessarily as competitors because uh, you know they're, they're they all provide a a different niche like the 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 the, the um 64 reloaded is for the kind of the purists that want to use the original stuff and just just replace an aging main board with something new you know um if you want that extra functionality of the of the uh the 1541 ultimate and all that stuff then you'd go with with Gideon's version, and the 64 is a whole console system. It's it's entirely new box and everything. You know, it's a whole unit. Well, thinking about it, I like the portal portable idea too. So maybe <laughs> maybe I would just get the portable version. Well, but, uh, I I feel weird about the portable version because you know it's not going to have like that physical keyboard and. Like when we use the pet phone and it's got an emulator on it, that sort of sucked because how do you, you know, it's a C64 game or something you're using. They're usually keyboard heavy. And how do you do that without a keyboard? Well, people, people modified their DTV. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I don't, I like the idea of having something to type on. But uh, so either way, links to all this stuff will be in the description for where you can check it out. Anyway, Darren, Darren. Is if there's one guy that is making it work, then it's it has to be Darren. Yeah. Because he's the only one, and we had this topic a lot of time, that didn't use the Commodore brand on bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. You know. The Vapid was not good. Um <laughs> the other stuff was the Wabbit wasn't not even good. a season. The Wabbit was just a thing. I know it's a, a Win- <clears throat> Windows 31 machine with an emulator on it, a C- CSS64 emulator on it. Yeah. That wasn't even running the C64 in full st- full speed because the hardware was too too weak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, it's a yeah. rare collector's yeah. item nowadays. Yeah. Okay, so other news. Mm-hmm. Well, the retro isn't. Unholy Night game um, has been released from former SNK workers. A new beat'em <clears throat> up game. A new game for the SNES after 19 years. There hasn't been official uh, commercial game since 19 years for the Super NES or the he's, SNES he's holding some it. youngsters. He, he's holding it up to the camera despite the fact that this is an audio podcast. Wow. Well, <laughs> it's, so, it's so great. It's so classy. I like it. I like the game. I like the build quality. It's, it's, it's a, great. It's a nice box. Let me, let me see that again. 
Sure, sure. That looks like so. That's a commercial game that's just been released. After 19 years, a new commercial game, hmm. and it even has a black a black cartridge in it. Yeah. And a full a full full color manual on it. Hmm. So you really get something for your money. And for USA and the rest of the world, Amazon is making the distribution. Dang. So yeah, that is that's a like a glossy manual full color. Y- yep. That's not bad. That's even that's even better than some SNES games had here in Germany. Yeah. Some of them were just black and white. Mm-hmm. You know? And and the funny thing is, this is the, the American release, and it comes in a European slash Asian Japanese form factor. You know, yeah. the American one was more blocky, right? Like a like a Lego prick, mm-hmm. but the Japanese Famicom, now, Super Famicom. Now, is and this the, meant to go along pin- with like the new uh, the the? The revived uh, SNES from Nintendo, or is this like just a standalone thing for the SNES? That's just a standalone thing, yeah. Or the SNES, as we've been. Yeah, called. it's a as standalone thing it. from from a publisher called Retroism. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Nice. It took 19 years to get a new commercial game. Maybe we and... should do a live stream of that. Sure. Sure. Yes. Why not? So um, I hope I hope the next commercial new game won't take another nineteen years. Yeah, that would be. Please, more of that, hmm. more of that. Thank you. Speaking uh, of this, this, this noise when you put it back you in. It. Uh, no, it's I don't. It's a collector's <laughs> item. Yeah, right. Uh. <laughs> yeah, right. So speaking of games of the- that were released, um, July twenty eighth. Citronic Software released Planet Golf for the 64. Yeah, just read read about it. Yeah, yeah and that, we talked about that in another one, another podcast. Uh, it's a really cool looking game. Uh, I pre-ordered Argus, which is an an amazing RPG. Yeah, amazing graphics, amazing. Hmm. So that is that is for pre-order since two days. Okay. <clears throat> Cool, cool. So, um, who's who's making yeah. that? Um, Psytronic. Oh, oh, they're oh, okay. Yeah. What's it called? Argus. Yeah, Argus. Yeah. Argus. Yeah. I don't see that. I'm looking at their list right here. It's probably it's probably not released yet. Oh, Argus, right there. A pre-order. Not released yet, uh, but pre-order. Oh, and there's an is... ultimate premium edition. Like, ooh, that is pretty. Lovely. And yeah. And after two days, they were already low in stock. So mm. I'm like, oh my god, you know, yeah. should better pre-order now. So if yeah. you want your if you want your ultimate edition, pre-order now. Don't wait. Mm. Yeah, it's funny because the SNES game actually was was out of stock after four days at Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. So people are really buying it, you know. Well, so the, I um, was actually that, yeah. That, isn't there a new uh, with the, with that new? SNES uh, classic isn't that all sold out now too? Yeah, well, that pre-order was sold out within within hours. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so I was I was actually I was actually waiting for my unit of the Unholy Night of the SNES game yeah. and was actually talking to Amazon 
customer support, you know, Amazon USA. And she was like, yeah, people are really buying it, right? Oh, everything is coming back nowadays. Yeah, it's it normal. Is. Normal, you know? Yeah. So they weren't surprised. So Amazon was like, okay, of course it's selling. It's from the 80s. <laughs> it's from the SNES game, holy I, cow. I think people are finally starting to realize that games, good games are good games. It doesn't matter what they're on. And that some machines were just were just good at making fun games, you know? Well, we, we spoke in our last podcast with Richard Löwenstein mm-hmm. of how little and how um, bad quality the uh, Amiga commercial games were in the last years. Yeah. But but in the SNES, there was none in the last 90 years. Right. Only pirate hacks, homebrew stuff, but nothing commercial officially. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so some 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 consoles were really good back in the heyday, but were totally forgotten ever since. You yeah, know. Yeah. I mean, there are new NES games which which we talked about in our new sections, mm-hmm. but there were no Super NES games. Right. Why? You know why? But but hey, slowly slowly the uh, forgotten platforms get what they deserve. They get reshorter for the Amiga. And now there's Unholy Night. And if Amazon is in the game, you can guess they know where the money is. Yeah. Yeah. If if Amazon is doing the worldwide distribution and American distribution, the sales, you can guess they make they made their decision well. Mm. You know? Back on the hardware deal, um, there's a new batch of plankton chips. These are um, PLA replacements. It's not actually not actually they are. Like, yeah. Okay. It's, it's not actually plankton, like you know, ocean creatures. It's a it's a PLA replacement that's supposed to be a hundred percent compatible with the original PLAs in the sixty fours. Um, that sounds like Jens Schoenfeld one. Yeah. No, it's not though. Um, oh, it's not. It's not. Okay. The cost is about fifteen dollars, which fourteen euros, um, and. I guess these were sold in batches. Now they're available on a continuous basis. So they're not being mm. sold in batches. You can just, it'll be available for however long it's available from. But on the Mark II, the PLR, what, what I read is hardwired um, on the board already mm. in another Yeah, custom. right. Yeah, it's not needed. You don't need it on the, on the reloaded or anything. But, yeah. but this is for people that need a PLA for their old machine. Well, that means that means there's not only Jens Schoenfeld having one. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, I, there's actually quite a few replacement PLA chips. Uh, if you look around online, there's probably half a dozen different people that make them. And they're all of varying quality. I saw an article somewhere, and I'll, I'll link to it if I can find it, uh, where someone kind of did a... They did a review of each of the different types and, and the shortcomings and the strengths of each one. Because some of them aren't, mo- most of them aren't like a hundred percent compatible with the original sixty-four PLA, and I don't exactly know what those incompatibility incompatibilities lead to, um, but but yeah, there is apparently some small incompatibilities or weirdnesses with with some of these. So, um, but there's there are easily half a dozen people making these things and selling them. Well, I I got mine in my reloaded first mm-hmm. model. And I have no issue with it. 
Yeah. And the one by Jens Schönfeld even has jumpers, so you can use it in different C models, yeah, not this, only the Z64. This is why I prefer the shortboard 64, because it doesn't have a PLA, because that's like the thing that goes bad 90% of the time. Right. Because they get super hot. <clears throat> and and as we've learned from Bill Hurd, it's like they, they designed these things to... to uh, you know, to last like they designed these things to get them out there in time for Christmas, but if it broke down a month later, oh well. <laughs> and what did you say? Get another one. We made thousands of yeah, those. Yeah, yeah, we made millions of those. Get another one. <laughs> so that's uh speaking of, of the pioneers though, again, um Vintage Computer Festival West is going to be happening on August fifth and sixth which may have already happened by the time you hear this, depending on how long it takes me to get around to editing it. Uh, but uh, Chuck Peddle and Leonard Trammell will be there. So that's, wow. that's cool. And how about the uh, video game con? Did you already get your ticket? I have not yet. Um, I'll be going to it, but I have not gotten my tickets yet. Buy it after the podcast. Yeah. Well, that's all the news I have for now. I've got uh, one other. Um... There's a, a group, it's the Save the Machine Computer Presentation Group. They are located in North Carolina um, at the Foothills Community Workshop. And their goal is to preserve computer history by preventing or rescuing vintage computer hardware before it's sent to landfills or scrapyards. And um, recently... They... Listen to our interview with the Atari digger, yeah, yeah. Atari hunter... Um, Joe Lewandowski, where we spoke about this topic right, well, for hours. Right. Well, this this group, the Save Save the Machine Computer Preservation Group, uh, they burned down. Yeah, I read that. A pretty sad story. Yeah, they've lost. Um, they put a list of the, some of the stuff that they've lost, and you know, while it's sad that this stuff was lost, I, a lot of this stuff is not going to be difficult to replace. They said. Various G3 and G4 machines from Apple, a Power Mac G4 Cube, a VIC-20, an IBM 5150, the PET 4032, I mean, Mac Plus. You can find this stuff on eBay for 10 bucks. you know. I mean, a lot of this stuff is pretty easy to come across. So uh, thankfully, anybody, yeah. thankfully, they didn't lose a Sinclair 1000. A lot of the stuff that they lost was not things that are difficult to find. So hopefully they can get more of these. Maybe some people will donate them. They said they're not sure what the future of the group is going to be, but they're going to maintain a Facebook presence and they're going to try their best to save more machines. Great. So we wish Great. them the best. Hopefully they can get back to where they were. And anyone that has one of these machines, I guess, that wants to donate to them, uh, you know, contact them and maybe we can rebuild the collection. Another news is our C64 news portal, C64 TV, actually is pretty Good, doing mm -hmm. pretty well. We receive um, a flow of news from time to time. So thanks to everybody contributing. Flow, from time to time isn't really a flow of news. That's more of a... <laughs> well, so far, almost daily. Um, I can't complain. Let's, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. So keep submitting your news. You can submit your news to 64TV by clicking on the top right side... Um, where it says submit news and then it will send an email to us and then it will submit the news to 
all our channels in Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the homepage. Yes. Yep. And we'll link to all of this in the podcast description. So anything that we've talked about or the news portal or whatever, you can just look down below here. Or actually, it's probably above what you're listening to, what, somewhere in there. And you can <laughs> click to it, click on it and, and check it out and learn more things. See you next time. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. Nope. Well, no, well, we should say now um, Andrew is over here waiting to begin the interview with, uh, with Saul. So, yeah, enjoy. Yeah, so let's pop on over there and uh, welcome them. So welcome to the latest SceneWorld podcast. We're interviewing a man today who has been very active over the last few years in the Commodore 64 scene in terms of graphics and music involved in games including Tidal and Jump Ninja and active also in the RGCD competitions. I'm talking about uh, Saul Cross. Welcome, Saul. Hello. Good evening. Hi. Good evening. Hello. And also here are AJ and Jörg. So then, do you still own a real C64, Saul? I do. I've got two. I've got a traditional bread bin and I've got a C64C. Uh, the bread bin is a bit scrappy. <laughs> uh, the C64C is slightly better condition and everything on that seems to work fine. So and it is nice to be able to get that out and to try things on real hardware from time to time. But unfortunately, what I don't have is uh, anything like a, a 1541 Ultimate or anything like that to get stuff in easily. So I can only do that from real media. But it is good to play with that once in a while. How did you actually get started in the C64? Uh, well, I started out really when I was a kid. So when I was about 13 years, 14 years old, I got first C64. And before that, I'd had a VIC-20. I was kind of interested in kind of basic programming on the VIC-20. and tried to create some kind of games on that, but wasn't very good. And then when I was uh, with the Commodore 64, I had a friend, a guy called John Williams, and we kind of created a game together which appeared eventually in GTW, which was called Track Trooper. And from then on, I kind of stuck with the 64 until the Amiga came out and then continued to do things with the Amiga and then kind of returned to the C64 after an absence of many years, thanks to car boot sales, because I'd I'd long lost my original C64 but came across one cheap in a car boot sale and thought, yay, Commodore 64, time to have a play. And it was well-timed because around about that time you started to see the first cross-development tools appearing on the PC. So it was a a good opportunity to get into it and start playing about with graphics and also to start learning a bit more about working with sound on the Commodore 64. I must admit it took me a long time before I produced anything fruitful. So I think really uh, Rocket Smash, which has kind of started in 2012 and completed in 2013, was the first proper project. Yeah, good. So what utilities do you use to make graphics? I'm very, very simple with it all. I use Charpad, SpritePad, and GangEd2 for everything that I do with the Commodore 64. No other tools at all. Just because I think it's kind of useful to have that immediacy of working within the correct restrictions all the time. Yes. And those tools give you that. And speaking of the restrictions, when it comes to the multicolors, which obviously fixed for, for the sprites and... Yeah background do you pick them first and then work or do you pick them as you go along 
I've usually got a reasonable idea what I want to do, so I usually do pick the shared colours first and, and work from that because I, I kind of make a decision fairly early on about, about the overall tone that I want, whether I want it to be on the darker end or the lighter end. In which case, if it's on the lighter end, what I'll tend to do is work with the, with the lightest grey. If it's on the darker end, I'll probably pick sort of either the darkest grey or one of the browns to work from and then work with the colours into that because those combinations are very good for kind of blending. Yes, uh, yes. In kind of quite useful sequences of palette colours and shades. And do you prefer working in multicolour or high res? If you'd asked me this a year or two ago, I would have probably said multicolour, but recently I've been doing a lot of high res stuff. And in a way, I've kind of found it liberating to have the extra pixel resolution, not to be stuck with wide pixels. And found it interesting just trying to work around having such a tight colour restriction, especially working in high-res character mode rather than in high-res bitmap or in, in extended character mode and just purely being stuck with the one background colour. Uh, so I'd say at the moment I probably favour high-res, but it's very, very close thing. I'd probably change again in a few months' time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I started doing some multicolour stuff again and found it fascinating just what you can actually do. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that was actually what I was thinking. Some people think the challenge is the entertaining part of the restrictions. Yeah, it, it, it is really. I, I, I mean, I found the same with other graphics as well. I kind of stuck with doing retro graphics elsewhere as well because I do like the idea of working with limited palette and, and not being a slave to massively high resolutions. In fact, actually, it's a challenge and a benefit because when you're working a lower resolution and you're concerned about every pixel, there are less of them to worry about. So <laughs> you just have to be more careful with each one you use. Yeah, well, that's the thing that I've noticed with, you know, a lot of times with... Uh with newer graphics on different platforms where you're not constrained by that it's not so much you're not so much drawing something as you're just sort of adding elements to to you know the pixeling is kind of gone it's like here put a word in there you know blur this or something there's no there's no talent or anything anymore to the to the actual composition of the images yeah yeah, and, and it's, it's almost like cartoonistry and doodling and just mm -hmm. basic imitating. I think. Mm. I think if a you lot look of at that the, uh, is lost. Mm. Uh, if you look at the indie game scene, because when people had went went from having say sixteen pulls up to having two hundred fifty six, then suddenly there wasn't such a, a a lot of thought required to shade something correctly. So everybody used to then just sort of assume light came from one direction. And then just block everything, almost like pillow shading, and and everything started to look a bit flat. Everything lacked texture. Started to, you know, everything was either plasticky or metallic looking. And I think a lot of the craft just disappeared. The, the more resources people had available. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the uh, indie game scene, there are a lot of games that use that sort of pixel graphic aesthetic yeah. to try and to try and draw draw out that nostalgia and that style. But in a lot of ways, I don't think they ever quite capture it the same as if they'd worked in pixels. Do you see what I mean? It's yeah. Well, it's... a lot of these games too, the the newer ones, they they go for that that pixely kind of look to to bring that nostalgia back. But but that's not what they actually looked like because when you're looking at them through a CRT, it blurs it all together and it looks a lot smoother than that. So yes, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a peculiar effect of CRT, isn't there? Sometimes you get adjacent pixels. And if the contrast level is is fairly stark between the two of them, then what you do is you almost get a third pixel mm -hmm. from nowhere. Mm -hmm. He kind of creates an imaginary line, and that's actually a product of the the, the interference across the 
kind of blurring from the CRT. Right. I, I, I tend to think when I look at modern games that try to be retro, the ones that do it best are the ones that don't actually use pixel art and don't rely on pixel art to do it. So you get things like Geometry Wars. Vector ones always work quite well because yes. that was always going to have a different kind of intention. But also you've got things like Monument Valley. And I think Monument Valley is kind of, although everything is very smooth and very crisp, it's actually got a kind of retro game aesthetic to it and a retro game sort of charm about it. Yes, it's uh, a very beautiful game. Minecraft, I think, does it fairly well as well with its with its pseudo-voxels, the fact that they're not really voxels in the cubes and they're in a 3D environment because the way it uses them uh, to, to, to be quite building blocks in a way, but um, you can, you know, this idea that you can create pretty much anything out of them, even though they don't particularly resemble everything. And then every one of them starts to count again if you mm -hmm. want to create a particular kind of form. And I think that's more more in the retro aesthetic than, say, a game like Shovel Knight. I think Shovel Knight's beautiful, but I don't think it really captures retro very well. It kind of looks like something trying to be Nintendo. It's not reaching the limits. It doesn't look right in terms of the screen presentation and so on. So what's your opinion about um, games like Thimbleweed Park that combine pixel graphic with new graphic technology, like that <laughs> pixel light shading that Ron I, Gilbert put, I, I put onto it? Some brilliant ideas in Thimbleweed Park, but I, I mean... I had a, a long, long discussion with John Christian Lorengal about this, the, the guy who wrote um, Rocket Smash, and uh, more recently Icicle Race with me. Um, and we were discussing the resolution. There's a very peculiar screen resolution, and it doesn't <clears> quite <throat> scale right. So you get some peculiar kind of irregularly sized pixels if you remove the filtering. If you put the filtering on, it all looks fine and dandy, but as soon as you remove it, you get this kind of really weird display. And I think to myself that in, in some ways it looks very beautiful, almost like the kind of stuff that, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, oh, I'm just trying to think of the name of the guy. The guy who did the UFO. Uh, I don't scratch my head trying to think. If I remember his name, I'll come back to it. But anyway, almost like the kind of stuff he was doing. And uh, oh, what was it called? That's going to bug me now the rest of the time. Um Anybody remember who it was who did the demo with the UFO that was uh, in his prehistoric time? That's the name of. So you've got some stuff that's got that kind of artistry in it. But at the same time, it, uh, under close scrutiny, it falls over. And if your audience was a bunch of people who are into retro systems, they're precisely the people you're not going to fool because you know the, the people who are really into the system know the hardware like the back of the hand mm. and they can tell you exactly what the pixel resolution should be what color combinations you can have what the uh, color gamut is in terms of how bright or dark those can be and so on and so forth and it, it kind of fails to do that uh the lighting effects are brilliant but the the the, the fact that they're not feasible within those mm. kind of systems makes it so again i don't think it's hitting the right tone to be the retro game i think um more successful in terms of capturing that kind of adventure is, is carrying the Tangled Tentacle. And obviously it yes. is on real hardware, but also it's got all that kind of humour and all that kind of depth of artistry in it that you've got in something like the Monkey Island games or the other Scum games. Yeah, but in 94, um, games, DOS games for the PC were a bit limited. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So you still you still had you still had VGA pixel graphic, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I remember the uh, original sixteen cool VGA palette. And I think it's one of the worst palettes ever. But when it was when it was used well, produced the most stunning images. 
really, really surprising artwork. And I remember um, looking at things like uh, StarCraft and so on when they mm. were and, and just thinking, wow. Uh, but, but some people... It was kind of a moving away from what a lot of people were trying to do to improve the graphics because there wasn't enough for a lot of dithering. Uh, you tend to see more clustering and more kind of painting techniques. And then it was kind of not trying to look like to kind of create the, the kind of feeling the art. I think that's what helped in a lot of ways. And some really nice stuff was produced. Even though, and this is me saying this, even though I thought the palette was god awful. <laughs> Yeah, so going back to restrictions, what have been the toughest projects for you in terms of memory restrictions on the 64? Uh, it's, it's always been the 16K ones, and I think the biggest challenge out of all of those isn't necessarily the largest one, because the, the largest one in terms of what it does is probably Icicle Race. But I think the most challenging one in terms of using those restrictions was probably Quack. Because yeah we've got a lot greater graphical variety inside Quack in terms of the uh, number of non-player characters having the bosses in there and so on. Uh, to try and fit in that small space at the same time trying to fit the music in there as well. And all the time I'm kind of trying to push for what I can do with the graphics. Uh, there's poor uh, Aussie Phantom, Dan- Daniel Hotop is, is, is kind of probably looking at me and thinking, what's he doing? He's eating away all my memory. Where am I going to put the code? Wait a minute. Um, but I mean, out of out of the three games from that that we entered in that competition that that year, that I entered in that competition that year, uh, it's the smallest one. It's the least number of levels, but I think it is the one that, because of the amount of sheer amount of graphics that's in it, is probably the most challenging for for me and for uh, Daniel as a programmer because we had to make sure we could just eke out every little bit. Um, uh, so that's the icicle race because, of course, it's got high-res overlays and things like that, which mm, obviously steal mm. a lot of time. But John's very good at compression. He's very good at doing things like flipping sprites on the fly and so on. So he, he knows how to save the memory. Yeah. Yeah, and in, in terms of Quack, was it an interesting challenge to try and recreate the Amiga characters, the Amiga style? Well, I mean, oddly enough, I think... I mean. I mean, in a way, it's kind of mistaken because most people think I was trying to emulate the Amiga, but what I was actually doing was trying to take the original BBC Micro version mm-hmm. and kind of dress that up to to get it somewhere between the, the somewhere between the BBC Micro version and the Amiga version. Obviously, it was more colourful uh, because it was the, the version I was more familiar with was the BBC Micro version. Uh, I did play it on the Amiga, and I actually looked at that and I did think, and it, I mean, still, there's still a possibility it will happen. That the features that we didn't include that are in the Amiga, such as the you have the, the screens where bombs collapse down from the sky and where different parts of scenery break up and so on, that we may yet include those and have some other large sprite things in there if we do a, a 64K version of it. But my target was just to try and make make an improvement on the BBC Micro version because I think it was one of the best games on the Beam, but was so constrained by the, the problems you had with the Beam in terms of you know, in software sprites only and... Yeah. Uh, such a, a kind of limited resolution and so forth. I just thought it could be done much better and also benefit from having a better colour palette because I always thought that the better games tended to be on the BBC Micro, the more garish they were and the more awful they were to look at. And actually, this doesn't mean that I think Quack was a bad-looking bad game, but it was kind of eye-searingly bright. And yeah, I the, to yeah. To that. 
the yellow color on the BBC Micro was very bright. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's, one, of the, one of the problems with having a, a digital RGB palette. So the moment you do that, you you can only have depending on how many bits you've got. You've just got these fixed levels of brightness for the RGB, and that's set digitally to a monitor. So it's all either full brightness or half brightness, and so on. You just get these very very blown out colors unless you've got a lot of bits to throw at it. And of course, the BBC Micro only had basically one bit for red, one bit for green, one bit for blue to actually construct the colours from. So it was it was full bright. It didn't even have the benefit the Spectrum has of having that kind of brightness latch, which would let you drop it down to, well, I think if you look at it, it's probably about 63% brightness. So you could get some darker or, or more softened, more pastely versions of those tones. In. It was just really uh, garish and really awful. <laughs> so when you're, when you're working with a programmer, do they allocate you a set amount of space or is it more a case of you work backwards and forwards to see what you need it has depended on the project so for instance with um x-force uh richard bayless was very specific about how much memory he had available for the graphics and what he wanted to do with them and he determined at the start that he wanted one just one single character set for the entire game uh, in-game for the levels and one character set for the presentation side of it. So the, you might not believe it to look at it, but it's one character set is used for all 16 levels on X-Force. And a specific number of sprites. So basically I filled up the sprites as, as fully as I possibly could. And then and then that was possibly one of the most challenging tasks I've ever had to do was trying to get all the graphical variations in it because it's a big game, it's 16 levels. But on other projects, it... it, it Kind of, I mean, I suppose it's possibly more me because I've been a bit pushed in saying what's and what's and what's this. And, you know, I, I'm very grateful to people like um, Andrea Wax because, uh, and, and uh, Dan and John because they're very, very tolerant of me and patient. I mean, they don't come back and say, no, you've got to lose this or you've got to lose that. And they'll still kind of try and fit this thing in 16K into a single load. But I think where I kind of uh, pay them back and I'm generous is on the music side of things. Because I always think that if you've got in-game music, you should have sound effects, and the easiest way to do that is to drop a, a voice. Yes. And if you drop a voice, you've automatically saved some memory. So I get a lot of tunes into a sort of memory print that way around. Yeah, and you've been pretty active in the uh, Lemon64 forum, Fred, with uh, yeah. mock-ups from other systems. Is there a, a particular game you'd like to work on at the moment? A, a particular remake or demake that you'd like to work uh, on? I mean, the one we started working on, which I'd like to finish, which is Imogen. Yes. I'd really like to see us get that finished because we, we got so far into it and uh, it's going particularly well. But if I was to pick on uh, a kind of a new game to work into the Commodore 64 at the moment, um, it's kind of tricky. There's, um, oh, I'm just trying to remember the name of it. It's one of these things that's infuriating. You know, middle-aged man, and you get started with senior moments, and you can't remember as well. Um, there's uh, one of there's a kind of a quest-style roguelike game that uh, appeared on iOS, which is I think it's called Bucket Night or something like that. It's basically Bucket Shape Tell Me, and I wouldn't mind having a crack at something like that or something with with, with sort of rogue aspirations, but a lot more action to it. There's been quite a few of them recently, and just picking on one of those and trying to convert it. And they, they, again, are these games that try to be retro, but they, they kind of throw too much into the mix and don't quite hit the mark. So it'd be nice to see something like that done on the system. 
and, and kind of working properly within those restrictions anyway to, to show that it, it is actually can be done and then maybe even transferring it back so you'd start one way and then work back and then work, work it back onto the sort of modern systems and make it available as a, a kind of a you know 79p a, a shot app store game something like that yeah, and and speaking of demakes, if if there was or remakes, if there was an old game, an existing game on the Commodore sixty four, you could do the graphics for to improve, to change. Which game would that be? <laughs> oh, so many to pick on. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 this probably sounds like sacrilege, but I'd love to have a go at Paradroid. <laughs> interesting interesting uh the, the reason i say that is because i think i, I kind of think andrew Brady was pioneering because of the stuff he did and he's you know the first person to really kind of take this by this kind of bass really far of the graphics thing and, and kind of run with it but he he kind of stagnated a bit and that was all he was doing when he was developing games on the commodore 64 and i think paradroid could could benefit from maybe having a kind of steampunky sort of look or something a bit more grungy to, to fit in better with the idea that you've got these big dreadnought spaceships that have kind of gone to pieces and fallen apart, and I've got the robots that have gone crazy, and you've got to kind of sort them out. It all looks a bit too clean. So I think Paradroid would be a nice one to have a go at, especially since, it, I suppose, because it is sacrilege, and so many people would hate you for trying. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I uh, interviewed uh, Andrew for Retro Gamer magazine, and he was saying uh, that was actually built on an earlier game he created in COBOL called Survivor which is where the line of sight rules came from but I think the thing a lot of people miss with it is the idea that you're not actually looking at the the physical decks of the ship you're actually looking at a radar display yeah which is why that why the sprites look like that and why they animate like that and in a way there's a lot of information in there because you've got the the class number in the middle of the robot and then the speed they're turning giving you the energy level so yeah. in a lot of ways those graphics serve a particular purpose well, the, the, in a way. The, the sprites are absolutely ingenious i mean i was i mean funny enough it's the it's the the deck detail that, that, that i always thought could be kind of changed but the sprites I always thought were brilliant just because of that fact that the sprites are all about telling you exactly what's going on like you say, you've got the speed and you've got the the number, so you can see, you know, is is this something I can take over or not because it's on a higher or lower level than I am, and so on. I always thought that was genius. I, I kind of like that sort of thing. I do um, other things that with, with, with computing. I develop software synthesizers from time to time, and I made a kind of a a VST which wasn't trying to emulate a SID chip, but it was kind of cribbing the architecture and trying to sound like a SID chip, loosely like a SID chip. And on the interface on that, I made it so that rather than having dials that you turn, that the displays, they were dials, but when you drag them, they have numerical displays in the middle. So I find that kind of stuff all very useful, anything that gives you kind of informative feedback. And I think that Andrew Braybrook was ahead of his time doing that because it was Mm. really before anybody had these notions about um, UX and and HCI and so on and so forth, even incorporating into an 8-bit game. Mm-hmm. which is staggering and Paradroid Standard is one of my favourite games of all time because I think there's so many groundbreaking ideas in that but I just can't get over how shiny it is I know it's supposed to be radar display but I still can't get over how shiny it is <laughs> yeah That's I mean amazing. I mean the thing in game development is uh, for once a lot of earlier games could have been done a lot more advanced or in a lot better speed for example Flight Simulator 2 
that that could be totally faster nowadays. I mean, if you look at Stunt Car Racer, which uses a similar um, polygon <coughs> technology, but um, it's a lot faster, a lot more fluent. And one thing I also learned is that a lot of um, things game designer or sound designer did when they worked on the game is that that actually sometimes the things were misunderstood and it came out different in games than it was intended to. Um, one example, for example, would be when, when I interviewed Chris Craig, who was the sound engineer of Epix, and he did the intro for California games. And he did the music for California games. And actually, the snare hits were interpreted as gunshots by the coders. So that is why, why, why at the intro, there are, there are um, shooting holes in the plate at, at, the, <laughs> at the intro of California games. It was misunderstood, you know. They thought Chris Grigg was actually emulating um, gunshots, but he wasn't. He was just trying to make snake. Snare uh, Yes. Yeah. Right. So, That's an interesting one. The sort of presentation graphics, menu graphics. How do you work on them? Do you have a, a, an idea first and then work towards it, or do you just rush at the screen and put the pixels down? Uh, I, I would like to say that it's, it's the first one I have the idea first, but I think what really happens is I kind of tend to look at the in-game graphics and also what, what I've got left available. And now I think to myself, what, what can I actually do here that's just going to fit in with those in-game graphics and be balanced? And then it's, it's I'll admit, I, I, I always tell people, because I, I teach as well, I always say to people, you should design everything on paper first and plan everything carefully and never do anything ad hoc. But always when I've kind of done the front screen bits and pieces, it's always been fairly ad hoc. And I've just kind of tried to make it matching what I've, what I've done elsewhere as best I can. But when it comes to bitmaps, title pages, that's slightly different. I do plan those out on paper and draw them. And actually with those, I'll usually, it's the one time I might go outside the um, kind of gang head and so on and use another package, is that I will tend to, if I've drawn something, I'll scan it and at least get the rough outline into there to build from. Because I, to be honest, when it comes to working with the bitmap graphics, my earliest endeavours in that were always unsuccessful in terms of getting the lines to flow in the correct way. So I kind of need something as a guide to uh, get started with those things. But, yeah, certainly the, the presentation graphics on the front ends and things, they're kind of thrown together, if I'm honest about it. Uh, hopefully successfully. I hope people don't kind of feel that they're thrown together. But uh, one exception, I suppose, recently is Platinum Worlds. I did actually decide very consciously to create the screen the way I did on Platinum Worlds because I was kind of a little bit dissatisfied with the front screen on Platinum from the cartridge competition and thought it was just a little bit sloppy and untidy with the way I'd done things. So I thought I wanted something that was kind of a much more crisp logo that could be reused and would provide some kind of textile. So I planned that out a little bit more carefully. Great. So in terms of the games you've been working on, which has been your favourite to actually play? Uh, Rocket Smash, I think. Either Rocket Smash or Icicle Race. Icicle Race, because I do love a good puzzle game, but with with Icicle Race you can get frustrated because, as you do with all puzzle games, you, know, you can get to a level, and even though I kind of rebuilt the map, because it, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's almost a direct conversion of uh, Fire and Ice. 
So we tried to make the maps as accurate as possible. And even though I took all those painstakingly across and I know exactly what everything is on them, I still get stuck on the puzzle, so it gets to be frustrating. So I think out of the two, it's probably Rocket Smash because even though it can be quite tricky on the later levels and, it, it is, and if you put it on the uh, hard difficulty especially, it's just immediate gratification. It never gets frustrating. If you die, you always die because you made a ridiculous mistake. It's, it's very fair in the way it plays, so it never becomes frustrating. It just It's just a challenge. So I thoroughly enjoy that. Other games, not not quite so much, just, just simply because of my own game playing skill, because I've never been a great game player. And one of the things about that got me into gaming more than anything else was an interest in graphics and music, so I, I tend to play games. Not obsessing about the graphics and music, because I do still love gameplay, but um, it, it would be the first hook. And I could happily play a game and not succeed in it. And the only thing that would drive me forward was the need to see what the next screen looks like uh, and so on. So so eventually I would play again. But uh tends to be games that are simpler and, and less frustrating tend to appeal to me more. And I think with the other games I've worked on, there's much more of a challenge that requires maybe a better hand-to-eye coordination than mine. So they just become a little bit too much from time to time. So moving on to the other side of your work, the music, when did you start uh, composing? Uh, I, I initially started composing for computer games years and years and years ago because one of the first things I did when I left college was I tried to do graphics and music work freelance. Uh, I'd had a work experience in a company in Dewsbury where I produced uh, a soundtrack for a sadly unreleased Nightbreed uh, conversion for Ocean. And I'd also done some other bits and pieces in there. I'd, I'd, I'd kind of painstakingly uh, put uh, the soundtrack from Double Dragon 2 into Amiga modules, so, but that was so that somebody else could then convert it into a player for another system. So I never got any credit for that, unfortunately. I'd done it, did a soundtrack for a, a sequel to um, Times of Law called Knights of Legend, and again, that never got released. So that was all a bit frustrating. But when I came out of college... I thought I really enjoyed doing that. I still was doing graphics at that time, so I thought I'll try and do that. And I did one freelance job, which was for a company called Atlantis Software, and it was the conversion of their game, The Killing Machine, from the, which was originally on the Commodore 64 to Amiga and ST. So I did the music for the Amiga version of that, as well as the graphics for the Amiga and ST versions of it. Sadly, my uh, career then in freelance just kind of disappeared, but I got very lucky because I then got a job doing multimedia design development, which at that stage, multimedia was a completely new thing. So I got to pretty much define what I was doing. And as part and parcel of that, I kind of got my employers to sort of agree to fund me in getting some music equipment in so I could record introduction music and things like that for the things. And from that point, I've been sort of steadily writing music for, I suppose it's 25, 26 years in one form or another. But in terms of music on computers, I didn't really return to that until uh, initially with DAWs and trying to emulate chip sounds on those things and getting kind of early mod trackers and things like that for the PC and playing about with those. And then properly, it was again, it's another one of these things that kind of started with Rocket Smash to get back into doing the Commodore 64 because when we chose to do that project, I'd sort of pretty much decided that. Uh, I wanted to do the music as well as the graphics. I just said to John, I said, right, I'm going to get Goat Tracker. I'm going to learn how to use it and, and started then. And actually Goat Tracker, my first piece of music on Goat Tracker uh, was the Rocket Smash soundtrack. 
And that was actually, prior to that, the only pieces of music I'd written on the Commodore 64 were two very, very lame pieces of music I did in, um, oh, what was it called, Rock Monitor 3, which had the oh. usual terrible digital drums on them. <laughs> I must admit to not liking digitised sound on Commodore 64 music because it kind of, I think, it, it feeds the object somewhat. Yeah. yeah. So, is it different to work um, now on um, on new games in your free time compared to when you worked on games and getting paid for it commercially? Yes, uh, it's. I mean, there's several reasons for that. I mean, obviously, there is the there is the, the notion that you have to have a different mindset. You can't expect any reward for doing this. So ultimately, you've got to do it because you really want to do the project. Uh, because you really like what you're doing, which is which is fine. I mean, occasionally there is some money comes back from it because some of these games are sort of commercially released through Cytronic or RGCD or or there are other projects elsewhere. Um, I did a, a a soundtrack using Goat Tracker, for instance, for a, a non Commodore game, which is Politikimon, which was released on Android, and and so that paid because that was a commissioned job. Uh, biggest difference is just the the, the luxury of time. That you have for these things because obviously you if you're giving your time freely you've got to fit it around work family so on and so forth so you've got to be fairly careful to balance things to make sure one thing doesn't interfere with the other and it's, it's not like the work-life balance where you can go to somebody else and complain about it if it's not right because ultimately you've made that decision yourself that you're going to spend x number of hours sitting in a dark room on your own tapping away at a keyboard uh, rather than somebody else telling you to do it so so when when your wife your children complain and say you're not you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing you've only yourself to blame so you've got to you've got to be fairly careful about that i get that balance right but in a way that kind of is useful because there's still time scales involved and that kind of motivates you to get things done quickly And not to obsess over minor details, but to, to think about the bigger picture and, and just getting things complete. And at the same time, then, if you want to have a reasonably high-quality thing, you've got to work consistently throughout because you, you, you don't have time to go back and patch it up. And I think, from my point of view, that's probably a good thing because otherwise things would be, become a lot more loose and a lot more sloppy if I didn't kind of work to fairly tight timescales on the bits and pieces as I do them. There is a cost to that, which is... For instance, certain projects end up getting pushed back and pushed back. And I do, for instance, I, I kind of uh, really owe uh, Mark Hinsborough a, a, a lot, really, because he's been very patient with me about doing the stuff on Aviator Arcade 2 because I still owe him uh, two levels worth of graphics and, and bits and pieces for that, which he's been waiting for forever. But it's just because of the scale of that project. I can do these other projects that fit into these nice little neat spaces, but his I need to devote a particular amount of time to to make sure that I can do everything consistently and, and make it match up to everything that's gone, gone elsewhere in the game. So I keep pushing him back and pushing him back and saying, oh, no, I'll have a chance to do that soon and, and get onto it. And then something else comes up, and I think I can do that in, in, in a day. I'll just get that done, and then suddenly I've not done Mark's work. And I think I kind of spread myself a bit thin. As a result of that, so that's the negative side of it because I because I because I'll quite happily take on a quick project if I think I can produce something that's that's going to fit properly and that people will like. And that's the other thing because you're not necessarily getting the financial reward, you, you're going to really hope that people like this stuff. And that if you're not going to get anything else, at least you get a bit of praise and somebody else will say that's that's great and that looks good. 
uh, it can be a bit cutting when you don't. I think there's been a lot of stuff on Lemon recently where people, I mean, myself included, I suppose, because I put a message straight up about appreciation, uh, where, where people have kind of felt a little bit unappreciated because of um, how things are kind of publicised in the scene uh, and so on. And it's not because we're all desperately trying to make a fortune out of it or because we're all kind of obsessive attention whores, but it's just because it's, 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 we, there's so little validation you can get from these things. Uh, you know, because, because funny enough, there isn't a boss standing over your shoulder who can tell you you've done the job properly, I suppose. Hmm. But then at least we don't have to cope with Metacritic and things like that. <laughs> well, this is true. <laughs> So, do you exclusively use Goat Tracker for creating your music? Uh, so far, yes. I mean, I've had, I've actually looked at Cheese Cutter uh, and considered trying to try and do something in Cheese Cutter, but but I've just found Goat Tracker to be a very comfortable environment to work in. I, I, I kind of like the, the the way that the wavetables and pulse tables and uh, the the speed table and things work in it. Just very accessible. I'm not one of these people who's a sound wizard. I'm not like um, Linus and Elman and all those cute people who can make a SID chip sound like some kind of interesting modern Uber synth. Uh, I, I make very Commodore 64-ish sounds. Occasionally, I kind of try to push the envelope by doing some weird things with them. And for me, Goat Tracker provides me with a good, a good environment to experiment with, and it never locks up. It's reliable. It's faithful. It doesn't use huge amounts of memory. Which is uh, again, I, I've got to give something back to the people I'm kind of pushing tons and tons of graphics onto. So if I say to them, yeah, but the soundtrack's gonna be nice and small. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's kind of one one good thing, and I, I, I kind of know it pretty well now as well, so I never get lost in it. And do you use it for the sound effects as well? I do. Uh, sound effects are the one thing that I think is a weakness with it, though, because whatever happens, whatever they do creating sound effects, you don't get all the same. Uh, controls as you do when you're creating normal instruments right? and you can't loop things and so on so you've got to be very careful when you, when you develop the sound effects but it does allow you to test them in goat track but the downside of that is that once you've tested them in goat track and even if you kind of export those as notes to Sid and you play them back they never sound the same through goat track as engine when they're played back in a game so you, you tend to kind of get messages back saying oh I played this but you can barely hear it and this is not to do with the filters either. This is really it's to do with the way that um, the ADSR works, because everybody knows there's some kind of flaws in the way that the uh, envelopes work on on a SID chip. Yes, yeah, uh, I know. They, they never become more apparent than when you're working on sound effects, especially if you're doing note stealing from a channel to do that, mm -hmm. or if you play multiple sound effects in a string. Because what will happen is it'll still be in decay phase when you try to do the attack phase from something else, and that attack just won't happen. And that yeah, I know. Yeah, I've come across the same problem with some of my own tunes, um, particularly in the, the earlier Dutch USA teams, Music Assembler. There were some effects you could put, and they sound great in the editor, and they sound great on a C64C, yeah. on the 8580 SID chip. <laughs> if you play them on the 6581, six, yeah. they sound really, really quiet, and they don't, you know, and... Uh, also on some models one to eight they sound really really quiet and you can't you don't get the same note yeah i mean that's actually i think why why some games actually have fixed um well music instruments for certain sit chips for example yes. um soul crystal from starbite software was one of those games and new new uh and newcomer that yes. huge um rpg of 
14 disc sites. They also had two versions. And when you ordered it back then, you had to you had to decide whether you want to have it for the old or the new SID chip. So you would it, always get the same... It's thing about the SID chips because a lot of people think that the difference between the two SID chips is purely about the filters. Because obviously the filter on the, uh, on the 8581 is a lot more... Uh, consistent, a lot more stable, but it's not just about the filters. There are other factors that are different, and uh, the amplification circuitry and the way the ADSR works is different. Yeah, and actually, absolutely. I, I think I, I think people may think that I favour six five eight one because I always target that first when I make music. The reason I do that is because I kind of know it's probably going to be loud enough and and play back reliably note for note on the eight five eight one if I get it working. I'm sorry, on the eight five eight zero if I get it working right on the six five eight one in the first place. So, and that's so I work that way around, and then I try to get it so that it doesn't have to be fixed for one or the other. So if I'm using filters, uh, I don't tend to just use a low pass filter on its own ever if I can avoid it, because obviously it can become very very muffled on a six five eight one very very easily, especially if somebody's got one that's particularly tight on the lower end. Uh, but I, I'll tend to use a combination between the low pass and the high pass, and the low pass and the band pass, so there'll be, be something squeaking through on whichever chip you put it on for the same reason. I think I maybe get criticised for that because I've had comments come back from people saying I don't know how to use the filters. But I, 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 I know how to use the filters, but I also know what the problems with the filters are. And I don't want to write a special version for different chips or <laughs> do, what, do what Martin Galway was once trying to do, which was to try and get an extra bit of code in there that allows you to tune the filter values because because that's certainly not going to happen with Goat Tracker. It's not really an option. I did... Um, on one occasion, so the soundtrack for Argus, which is uh, going to be released soon, uh, in the in the file for that, I actually have two versions of the in-game tune, and one of them is actually had the filter tune for 6581 and the other one for 8580. Uh, I don't know whether Akim has decided to include that as a switchable thing inside the uh, code or if he's actually checking the chip to automatically switch it or if he's considered it. But certainly if I make the soundtrack available on, on CSDB as I tend to do, uh, it will be that version that's got both versions of the tune in. I might leave it to people to guess which one's which. <laughs> uh, it's, in, it's, it's interesting because there were there are one or two games out there with um, a tuning option for the filter. Beachhead, for yeah. example, you can, you can alter the filter settings and uh, international... 3D tennis from sensible software uh, that has that has a, a filter change. So you can change with that. The obviously the the pause is a is a noise waveform going through a filter, and so by by changing the filter setting, you can get a very different you can get a very different sound. Yeah. You you get a very different richness to the to, to the applause from from the audience, and the game itself uses that in a clever way because you start off in the early rounds of a tournament in a small a small stadium a small court and you gradually get through the game to the final the, the grand final is in is it's in the big center court and so the crowd is m- much louder by default on that court as in it's an interesting little thing that they put into the game yeah it's quite i mean it's quite interesting playing about with stuff with the Commodore filters as well because the they're, they're relatively basic filter but they've got some lovely kind of distortion to them and some interesting little side effects, which is they create these kind of sideband frequencies because of the distortion. And I found, again, this is on the Argus soundtrack more than anything else, that if you do certain things with them, they tend to start almost like a comb filter and introduce mm. some interesting additional harmonics in there. It's quite subtle. But you then get some very uh, almost 
sort of digital-like tones down the SID chip, almost like kind of early FM. Not not necessarily DX7 like FM, but um, sort of early FM still, I suppose. That just just sound that little bit different, and it's not that they sound like like I said, they don't sound like modern synthesis in any way, shape, or form. But they just create some interesting kind of noises. And also, if you if you overdrive them a lot, in particular, I, I found that if you if you push the triangle wave through the filters with a low pass and a, a band pass or high pass combined, uh, and the resonance cranked right up, that you tend to get something that sounds like ring mod without having to use the ring mod, which is kind of useful because if anybody's ever played around with, with trying to use ring mod sensibly on the Commodore 64, they know that getting the harmonics right is, is an absolute nightmare. It's near on impossible to do. Uh, so, for instance, on um, the music on uh, Tiger Claw, there's, the, there's one of the pieces of music is kind of made of little bells and chimes, and that uses the uh, ring mod, and it took me absolutely ages to work it out. But I kind of get these quite bell-like sounds on the music from Icicle Race just by kind of driving this filter. That's interesting. I mean, if you look at the, the manual for the C64C, Commodore actually left out all the section on ring mod and and the ring mod yeah. and sync modes from the SID chip. So it's almost like they're saying, don't use them, but they're still yeah. there in the chip. Uh, oddly enough, once you do figure them out, I mean, the sync especially, once you figure that out, it's incredibly reliable, but it's just... It's just the tuning of it is very, very hard to do, to get anything useful out of it. And it's actually been, been used more effectively for sound effects than anything else, because obviously you can make these yeah. nice metally clangs and bangs, but you you hear it so rarely in music unless it's producing some kind of weird atonal effect. Mm. I know that Rob Hubbard did it a lot and did it wonderfully effectively, but uh, so few music- musicians ever bother with it for that reason, I think. And so um, what sort of music do you like to listen to away from the computer? I've got quite eclectic taste, so this is quite a, quite a bit of classical music, um, and uh, obviously pop from the era I grew up in. So I really like sort of eighties pop music and electro pop music. Uh, prog rock, I think it's kind of obvious because that kind of creeps into some of the stuff that I write as well. Um, in terms of, I've, I've got very very mixed taste because, for instance, I'm a massive Pet Shop Boys fan. Uh, but at the same nothing, time, I like bits of punk, and uh, then I like electric bands like Tangerine Dream. I like Mike Oldfield. Um, my son recently played some heavy metal to me. I was never really big into heavy metal, but he played some heavy metal to me by a Dutch band who do heavy metal tracks that are about historic wars. I can't remember the name of the band, but but I thought it was superb. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's, kind of, it's very very mixed. But I suppose in terms of uh, stuff that I listen to that probably influences the music I write. Um, certainly my cold field the more folky elements and stuff like that and the prog rock probably influences more than anything else and then maybe bits and pieces of the electronica so Tangerine Dream and, and I think Ja obviously I think people yes, sort of yes. comment a couple of my tracks have got that kind of influence in there I think on the in terms of the pop stuff the My Life soundtrack is the one that shows my kind of pop taste because I picked to sort of do pastiches of styles from the late 70s and early 80s on all the tunes, so it fitted in with basically the time when people were using the Commodore 61 in the first place, because the original Mike he had picked on the 1950s, and it seemed like a, you know the same period, 30 years, to kind of leap back, and so, so do a similar thing. So I kind of picked all these kind of 70s and 80s poppy type 
styles put on the soundtrack of there, but but all ones that were to my taste. So I don't. I mean, I don't know if they're noticeable, but for instance, one of the tracks has got a kind of a slightly new orders influence to it. Another one is kind of a, uh, like a track by Europe and, and so on. There's one that sounds like, in fact, one that really rips Stevie Wonder off a bit because I stole the bass line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in in terms of the the 64 who are who are your heroes who do you think really made the most out of the hardware uh rob hubbard without a doubt um, i'm not just saying that because i now live in hull because i'm actually originally from sheffield because he's a hull lad so i suppose to give him a nod anyway but uh i think the the first reason i ever bought a game for any other and any other reason than the fact that it was the game to have because the advertising the hype and everything was because it had a rob hubbard soundtrack on it and uh, yeah, everybody's got a story about the game, the Rob Hubbard game that they did. But I, I lived in Sheffield. We had Gremlin Graphics in Sheffield, so we kind of got the first sort of sneak peeks at the stuff that Rob Hubbard was doing. So I, I kind of heard the thing on a Spring Music, uh, probably about a month before anybody else did, because I, I was in the shop just micro, which is down below Gremlin Graphics, and he used to pop upstairs to their offices. And I actually went up there, and they were sat there coding thing on a spring in the office, and they had this music playing. I was like, "Wow!" And similarly with the Monty Monty Mole thing. But the one that really got me was Master of Magic because I, I didn't think it was possible to create sounds like that and to get such a complicated orchestration mm. at Sid mm. Chip at all. So he's definitely a hero. Um, Bob Stevenson for the Wow on the graphics, similarly because of, because of the way he kind of pushed the envelope in terms of. I mean, it was a bit more graphics more than in-game graphics with, with um, Bob Stevenson. Yes. It was really, really incredible images that he created. And um, then Tony yeah. Crowther, because I, I met him on several occasions, and he was just such a nice bloke. I mean, genuinely uh, completely down-to-earth and matter-of-fact about things. Uh, so he'll always be a, a, a kind of a great hero. And, and then in, on, on terms of other programmers, um, Andrew Braybrook, because I really do think he, he did groundbreaking things and was out of his time. And uh, uh, who else? Tim Follin, who I, to this day I cannot understand why he decided to go into film production. I think it's a tragic loss to the world of computer games and he's not writing game soundtracks anymore because he's just an absolutely staggeringly beautiful music that he wrote when he wanted to and god awful music that he wrote when he wanted to as well he's just a, a, an audacious talent and um probably i say last but not least jeff minter because i played his games be even before the Commodore 64 but on the big 20 you know that were just you wouldn't have thought were possible and that were so kind of wacky and out there and strange and at the same time were so kind of full-on balls-out arcade action, very compelling and very energetic and just drew you in. So probably too many, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And uh, are there any sort of tricks or techniques you think people, you know, who are following in your footsteps, working on graphics and music, are there, are there any key techniques people should learn? I suppose a couple of things. What I would say in shading, and this is... Uh, not not in, in any kind of criticism of, of Rob Levy, but Rob Levy did the Armalite graphics, and and since then you see an awful lot of sprites done in this same kind of way that they look very metallic and and they've got a sort of solidity to them, but they're always shaded for kind of exactly the same place. 
so that basically everything looks as though it's lit directly on. It's almost like pillow shading. And um, I would say I, I try, like try to avoid that and offset your shading uh, and to, to give things a – because then you can give things rather than just a sort of pseudo 3D look. You can actually start to give them a real 3D form. And uh, that nowadays is, is uh, kind of nice to see. Because we have such such easy tools to work with now, it was always awful when you used to have to type stuff in as as uh, you know, work out the bits and stuff and, and convert them into bytes, or work with very very crude editors. But now we've got such good editors that you can take your time to kind of carefully work out to shade something properly. But I'd also say don't always shade things in the first place. There's still a lot of room for cartoon like graphics. I remember doing a uh, refreshing the classics thing, which was Chucky Egg, and kind of thinking you can go a long way by having these kind of pixels. And I've kind of employed the same approach when I did the graphics for the um, space trip recently, the, for the main character. I took a very cartoony approach. There's kind of metallic shading on the aliens and robots and things that fly out, but he's done more as a cartoon and kind of flattened off, and I'm not bothered to shade him at all because I, I don't want to kind of maintain that character of a cartoon within him. On the music side of things, I would say, and I'd, I'd probably get nice for this as well, is listen to different types of music and try to create different types of music as many as you possibly can. Because I think Commodore 64 music, although there's some brilliant people doing it and they create some wonderful tunes and things, it's at the same time it's kind of stagnated into this sort of jazz funk thing. That almost mm -hmm. every Commodore 64 tune, new tune you hear is a jazz funk tune. And okay, they're kind of wonderful and there's got some great technical stuff going on. But actually, not one of those jazz funk tunes fits a game. Because it doesn't have anything to do with telling a story or creating an atmosphere or whatever else. And what people need to do is they need to look at the story and the atmosphere of the game and try to represent that. Now, I would, I'd be absolutely honest about this to say if I tried to write one of those jazz funk, funk things, I'd probably fall flat on my ass. So it might sound like sour grapes. And like I'm, I'm saying that because it's what, what I can't do. But I, but I think, I hope that what I do is I actually kind of look at what's actually going on in the game, the action the story, and try to write a piece of music that fits that. And it's kind of what the greatest Commodore 64 musicians were doing back in the day. If you look at Ron Puppet, his stuff has character that fits the nature of the game. It's not just all one tone or one note. Uh, you kind of got that way at a certain point. And, and similarly, Martin Galway, all his stuff kind of fitted the tone of the game. Eventually, I think he, he became tired of it. He started becoming stylistically. He was just recognising Martin Galway. But I think it was much better when it wasn't recognisably that musician, but it was this kind of special music that fitted the tone. Actually, what what most people don't know that Rob Hubbard did uh, did really good music on PC speaker. When when yeah. you listen to the PC speaker version of Ski or Die, you are totally blown away by what he is capable of of doing by the limitation of the PC speaker. Back yeah. back in the uh, late eighties. Where, where gamers didn't have a sound card in their PC, there there was only PC speaker as an option. Me 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 me. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, and yeah, he actually he actually made it so so um so the music would actually sound like actual music and not so beepy yeah. anymore. There was, yeah. a, there was a similar thing with Tim Follin and the and the ZX Spectrum. He used to drive stuff through the little beeper on the ZX Spectrum. And he had a music driver, which was effectively almost like a one-bit digital synthesizer that would allow him to recreate chords and percussion and harmonics and so on through the 
people on the spectrum. And I know Rob Hubbard did some stuff like that as well. And I think that kind of stuff is kind of ingenious, that somebody's kind of found a way, I suppose, to take advantage of a limitation and turn yeah. it into benefit. Because suddenly when, you, when you're doing that, you're no longer constrained by this is the waveforms you can play or this is the frequencies you can have. You can suddenly do pretty much anything because what you're actually doing is you're just working how to switch something on and off really rapidly. Yeah, in a lot of ways, that that sort of shaping the sound that you mentioned earlier, sort of the FM synthesis sound that you yeah. hear in the, the Sega arcade games, and to some extent the Amiga is similar in using in, in effectively being samples rather than rather than the 64's waveforms. You know, there are there are so many ways you can use that same sound and yeah. build up the layers, and it's it's finding the interesting way to make those sounds rather than just just chucking a sample at it. Yeah. I mean, so some people found some very neat tricks on the Amiga, which is that you could, for example, if you had a a, a sound with a relatively short decay tail on it, so say you wanted a piano, but you've got to, you've got to keep the sample size down, so you'd have a relatively short decay tail on it. Uh, and then kind of identifying a smooth loop in that and looping that, but looping it at a very low volume, and then playing sounds on alternate channels so these things overlap. And what you effectively got is you got something that mimic reverb without having mm. any reverb available. Uh, and tricks like that, it's, there's a, and there's an awful lot you can do with sample mashing. I did the the, 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 the most recent thing I did with mod uh, or pro tracker, uh, mod soundtracks, is I did the Tiger Claw soundtrack for the Amiga version. I did a lot of stuff there with with very, very sort of small samples uh, and putting these tight loops in them that are deliberately offset slightly. The loop isn't perfect, so they have a little kind of kick or a crunch in them to create buzzing sounds and, and little distortions in there to, to actually stop it sounding quite so crisp and clean sampled Amiga should make it sound. Because the Tiger Claw soundtrack on the 64 is using filter lock, which you don't have on the Amiga, so you have to find, find other ways to make it squelch and burp. So I was trying to find ways of doing that by using these little distortions of the samples. So we definitely learned that there are ways to use the restrictions of the old hardware to produce something new. And I'm sure I I can speak for my colleagues on Scene World when I think that, uh, Saul, you are great at using the Commodore 64 definitely, in terms of yeah. graphics. Well, and you, you won't be able to see it, but I'm kind of bright red now and it's not the <laughs> Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you this evening. And to you too. And, uh, Thank you for having me on. Thanks for taking the time. I've learned a lot about the SID ship today that I didn't know before. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and Saul, it'd be uh, great to talk to you sometime about your your work back in the back in the eighties. Obviously, yep. uh, writing for Retro Gamer, I I you know always looking for people to interview and talk to. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to chat about that. It'd be great. 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 Thanks so much. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs> and that was Saul Cross. If you want to see uh, the things that he's doing and learn more about him, you can go to his website. It's www.simple-media.co.uk. And you can also check out the RGCD website, which has more stuff by him, at www.rgcd.co.uk. You know where to find us. Uh, sceneworld.org, all those requisite websites. Also check out our new news portal at c64.tv Until next time, I'm AJ Yurg's already in the bathroom. See you later <laughs>